So we're in the Advent season, and this year we are following the traditional church calendar for Advent. Um, we looked at hope the first week, peace the second, and then this is joy week. So we're talking about joy, which I think is good. Um, we need some joy, I know I do. I want to say at the outset, I know sometimes it's possible in churches for people to talk about joy as if life is really all about feeling good or life being pleasant. And that's not at all how we're looking at it today. So I want to start here. On the night before Jesus was going to die, he's trying to explain to his disciples they were going to experience pain. But he says, you know, don't despair, don't get, don't get discouraged, don't give up, because eventually they would know greater joy. It's a really poignant scene. Uh, but the way John paints it, their confusion is, is pretty funny. They just have a hard time getting what Jesus is saying. So here we go. This is from John 16. Jesus says, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a, a little while, you will see me. Then some of his disciples asked one another, why is he telling us in a little while you will not see me? And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, why is he saying a little while? We do not understand what he's saying. Jesus realized they wanted to ask him about it. So he said, are you asking yourselves what I meant when I said in a little while, you won't see me, but at, but a little while after that, you will see me again. To which his disciples, I think, said, yes, that's exactly what we were wondering. And I think this is just great, just so real. Yeah, we're trying to figure it out, Jesus, but we just don't understand what you're talking about. So this is, there's this kind of long wind up for this. And then Jesus paints them a picture to try to explain what's going on. He says, a woman has pain in childbirth because her time has come. But when she brings forth her child, she forgets her anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will ask me no more questions. And we'll actually come back to that no more questions comment. But Jesus starts with this metaphor. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the pain. So when our first baby was born, Katie and I went through this birthing class. I don't remember much about it other than I fell asleep during part of it. Um, one thing I remember <clears throat> is that they didn't use the word pain. So it's kind of a negative word. So they just said the mom-to-be might, mom might experience some discomfort when she's going through childbirth. So my job as the husband in this whole childbirth deal was basically just telling Katie to breathe. Just something called deep cleansing breaths. And it's not really clear to me how my telling Katie to breathe, which she had been doing pretty much her whole life, would prevent discomfort during labor. But uh, I'll do what I have to do. The day came. Katie was in labor for a long time. I did my thing. Uh, I went and got the ice chips. I adjusted the pillows. I encouraged her to breathe. Deep cleansing breaths. I massaged her back. I was bent over for hours. My back was aching. My hands were sore. Um, I had to take some deep cleansing breaths myself, but I never complained. Um, not, not one time. And the, and the worst moment came near the end of labor. Things were getting pretty crazy. I knew I had to do something. So I leaned over to Katie and I whispered in her ear, Katie, are you experiencing some discomfort? Which I know now was the wrong thing to say. The point Jesus is making is the joy of giving birth is going to outweigh the pain of giving birth. The point is 
that what starts in pain is going to end in joy. So Jesus is crucified and the pain for the disciples is overwhelming. Then he's risen and the joy is overwhelming. Joy marked the early church. Life was really hard for them. They would be physically beaten. And we are told that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for, for the name of Jesus. They'd get clapped and changed. They'd get changed. They'd get thrown in dungeons and prisons and they would have hymn fests. They would just sit there and singing song and sing songs until late in the night because there was no other way to express the joy that was in their hearts. They had nothing. They lived in poverty. In 2 Corinthians 8, 2, Paul says about the early, early church that they were being tested by many troubles and they were very they are very poor but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. And so Jesus was exactly right. Nothing could take their joy away. And Jesus, that, that same night, the night before he was going to die, was teaching for a long time. And then he said the reason why he was teaching this was, he said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So what does it mean for your joy to be full? It means there won't be any more room for any more. That's what it means to have your joy be full. Jesus said that quite a lot. Is that true of you? Do you have room for any more joy? I know I do. So the question today is, how do we reclaim the joy Jesus says he came to bring? And here's the main thing I want to I go through this, in this talk. Years ago, there was a Christian psychiatrist named Frank Lake. He got really concerned because he was working with Christians, and most of them loved God. They were fired up to serve Jesus, but... But then they would go to, to serve him, often to difficult places. And within a couple of years, they would get discouraged and resentful and have these bitter attitudes, just get burnt out. And so he thought about this a lot. And he got together with a great theologian by the name of Emil Bruner. And they began to reflect on the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And they noticed with Jesus, even though his life was really hard, he faced a lot of hostility and opposition, he never got burnt out. He never got sarcastic. He never got cynical. He never lost his motivation. He never lost his joy. So they asked, why is that? Because he's fully human like us. When they looked at Jesus' life, they saw a pattern to it. And it was different than the pattern of the lives of these other folks who Frank Lake was working with, who he, he saw were burnt out. He, they saw all human beings face challenges, and we all face demands. So they knew that this would be helpful for everybody, not just people in ministry. But what they saw is, this, this, is that Jesus lived in a kind of a rhythm where divine grace was always flowing into him and then flowing out through him. And Frank Lake called this pattern of the life of Jesus the, the cycle of grace. He said Jesus lived in this cycle of grace. And I think that this is a really, it's really critical for us. So I want to take what's left in this talk the next hour or so and just walk us through this cycle of grace. So first, number one, acceptance. The beginning part in this cycle of grace is acceptance. It's the first movement in the cycle of grace. Grace starts with this. Jesus, before he begins his ministry, some of you know the story, he goes to be baptized. When he comes up out of the water, he hears a voice. And the voice is his father. The voice says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So before Jesus heals anybody, before Jesus preaches a sermon, he hears, you're my son. That's your identity. I love you. That's your value. That's your worth. I am well pleased in you. How do you think Jesus felt when he heard those words? For Jesus, this is the beginning of the cycle of grace. Identity and acceptance come before achievement and work. 
Identity and acceptance come before achievement in ministry. In other words, achievement is not done to demonstrate identity. Don't get your identity in what you do, because that is a joy that can be taken away. And it's kind of interesting. The, the day on which you, your, your sheer existence is celebrated is on the day you were born. But you get no credit at all for the role you took in, that, in that, the events of that day. In fact, you were never less competent on any day of your life than on the day you were born. On that day, you were weaker, slower, dumber, slimier, less coordinated, had a lower IQ, and were a bigger nuisance than any other day of your existence. Because a birthday is just grace. We all know this. Live long enough, you get, you know, live 100 birthdays, you get a card from the President of the United States congratulating you. What'd you do? You just didn't die. That's all you did. You just kept going. But somehow we know every human being has this worth and they ought to be celebrated. That's grace. Jesus hears this voice from heaven. You're my son. I love you. We don't know how many times he heard it. We know for sure he heard it again when he had to go and die on what is called the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. I don't know how many t times Jesus heard that, but... He lived it. Jesus depended on God's acceptance because he would face massive human rejection. He didn't say, God, make my life easier. Help me not to be rejected. He just lived in, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And that's not just for him. Jesus realized his acceptance was not just for his own sake. We all win because Jesus got grace. John wrote, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus said on the night before he was going to die, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you. He expects his joy to be in you that your joy might be complete, full, no room for any more. I think it's really important at this point to understand what joy is because so often people do not. So let's look at these words together. This is from Dallas Willard. Think about these, these words and this definition. Joy is not pleasure a mere sensation, but a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. Hope in the goodness of God is joy's indispensable support. Joy is not pleasure, not a mere sensation, not just feeling happy in the moment because of something that's going on. It's a pervasive and constant knowledge of well-being that all ultimately is well with me and not just with me, but all things. That's joy. So question, can you get joy from alcohol? Now put it another way. Could large daily amounts of alcohol reliably provide pervasive and constant well-being for the human race? No. Neither can applause. Neither can achievement. Neither can human approval. Neither can the right title. Neither can technology. Neither can education. Neither can money. What in the world could provide pervasive and constant well-being for the entire human race in all of creation? Only God. Only God could do that. That's why when the Bible talks about the importance of joy or rejoicing, it says not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Because only God can, only God is competent to provide pervasive, constant well-being for all of creation. Nothing and nobody else can do that. That's why the only joy that matters is joy in the Lord. That's why Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord doesn't mean only the joy I feel when I'm at church or when I'm reading the Bible or when I'm singing a, a worship song or something like that. It's the joy that comes from knowing whatever it is that 
reminds me that I and all of creation are in the hands of an immensely good and competent God. That's the joy of the Lord. There's no other foundation for joy. Nobody has ever found one. That's why the Bible says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why did he endure the cross? Why did he scorn it? Joy. Joy is going to win. No hurt or pain, no guilt, no sin can take, take that away when it's offered as a gift of grace purchased on the cross from God. I hope you know that. That's where the cycle of grace begins. I am accepted. We sometimes talk about accepting Jesus, but what's really important is to know Jesus has accepted me. And I thank him for that, and I, and I own that. That's the first part of the cycle of grace. Number two, the next part of the cycle is sustenance or sustaining grace, and this is very important. The idea here is that Jesus engages in certain practices that allow God's grace to keep replenishing his spirit every day, every hour, all the time. He would pray, he has a close circle of friends, and he shares everything with them. He's very vulnerable with them. People tremendously underestimate the replenishing power of close friends in the life of Jesus. Um, he engaged in regular corporate worship. We're told in Luke, he went to the synagogue as it was his custom. Um, that, that's what we do every Sunday. Jesus did that to fill himself up. He fed his mind on scripture. He enjoyed God's creation, right? He would go to the mountains. He would go to the garden. Uh, he, would, he would go to the lake. He took long walks. He welcomed little children. He hugged them. He blessed them. When he did that, it filled him, him up. And here's one you might not have thought about before. He enjoyed partying with non-religious kinds of people. This was so much so, so much so that there were rumors about him. The Bible said the Son of Man came eating and drinking. People noticed this. People said he's, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of immoral people. Here's the, here's the big idea. We need to engage in practices that connect us to God's grace and to energy and to joy and to being alive. It might involve something like just going outside, maybe listening to music, maybe giving your, you know, being with life-giving friends, maybe going to the lake, going camping. So you're going to have to find out what the ways are by which God replenishes your spirit. That's important. And I laugh about this, about this with my wife, but for some reason, my wife is one of those people who loves to get the car as close to empty as she possibly can before she fills it up. So anytime we're going someplace, I know the first thing I will have to do is go get gas. Jesus does not want you driving on empty. I mean, for your soul. I don't care about your car, but for your soul. People go through life and they're living on empty. And sometimes people do it and they think it honors God. It does not. A joyless life does not honor God. God never called you to a joyless life. Jesus never says your life will be easy. Jesus says my joy will be in you and your joy will be full. And it cannot be taken away. So we are to live in this cycle of grace that starts with, oh yeah, I'm, I'm God's beloved child. You are God's beloved child. That acceptance that came to Jesus came through Jesus to you on the cross. That's who you are. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. Doesn't matter how well you think you're doing. Doesn't matter. That's who you are. You have to listen to that voice until it just becomes second nature. Oh yeah, that's who I am. And when you start living with that knowledge, always present in your mind, you become a different kind of person. Then we move from acceptance into sustaining grace. Where in my life I am discovering and actually engaging in practices by which the sustaining grace of God is pouring into me all the time. That will involve scripture. 
and immersing my mind in thoughts that are true and, and noble and right and good and pure in my relationships and what I eat and who I hang out with and what I do, I'm living in that grace. And you may need to explore what some of the things are that fill your tank up. That's a really important part of spiritual transformation. Number three, significance. What Frank Lake noticed was with Jesus, it starts with acceptance and then these sustaining practices, and then it moves to significance. The idea of significance is I was made to make a difference beyond myself. And all of us, all of us are to point to something bigger than us. We're all like little signs pointing to God. Jesus was really clear on his significance and he would talk about it often in these great I am statements. I am the way, I am the bread of life, I am the vine. You'll find life in me, I am the good shepherd. You'll find care in me. These are why he was in the world. Your significance is why you're in the world. He would say this to his followers, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. So Jesus gets baptized, he's told by this voice from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In the very next verse, he's taken out into the wilderness and the evil one says to him, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. In other words, don't trust the voice. Don't listen to the father. Don't depend on grace. You have to prove it. You have to earn it. You have to make it happen. You have to make it all about you. The temptation is for Jesus to question his identity and to feel like he had to prove his identity by doing spectacular things that would set him apart and mark him as one who was superior. So Jesus said, no, significance is about who we are before it's about what we do. Why were you placed in the world? Are you an encourager and a people builder? Are you an artist who brings healing to the soul through beauty? Are you a connector who makes little families out of strangers? That's the core part of you. I think maybe the best way to find this is to say, what is it that people will say about you at your funeral? And I'm not kidding. They aren't going to talk about what job you had at your funeral. They will talk about the core parts of you. That's your significance. The number four, achievement. It's action. It's fruit. Jesus did a lot of stuff. He achieved a lot of stuff. He taught. He traveled. He healed. He explained. He recruited. He put a team together. He developed people. He confronted in about three years, he achieved more than any human being ever has. Achievement, action, it's really good. It's really important. It is just as much a part of grace as acceptance is. Jesus did kingdom work all the time, but he did it from grace, and therefore he did it with joy. It fed him. His disciples came to him one time. They had been out getting food. They said, aren't you hungry? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. It actually nourishes me. It feeds me. No matter that, that people sometimes didn't take it well, didn't want it, responded badly, it could not take away his joy. Sometimes people weren't grateful. One time he healed 10 guys, 10 lepers, and they went away and only one came back to say thank you. The other nine didn't even come back. Didn't stop Jesus, didn't burn him out, didn't make him cynical. Didn't make him say, well, I guess I'm not going to heal the next leper because nobody cares. Nobody's grateful. Cranky, sinful people couldn't take away his joy. He just kept healing, just kept loving. And he said to us, now you do the same thing. Don't just love people who are easy to love. Anybody does that. Love people who are hard to love. Which, side note, is impossible if the only people you're ever in contact with are well-behaved, sanctified people like you. That's where our chance is to love like Jesus loved. That's why we're here. 
do the work, do it with joy. So that's the cycle of grace, acceptance, sustenance, significance, achievement. But there's an opposite way to live. The opposite way is what might be called the cycle of works, where we just go backwards. We start at the end. We start by trying to achieve impressive accomplishments so that we can feel like we have acquired significance, so that we will somehow be able to be sustained through all the challenges and demands of life. And the goal of all that is to one day, is that one day I might be somehow acceptable to somebody. That's the way of death. That's the cycle of works. Another phrase for this cycle of works is the kingdom of this world. I think if you look at your life and you see little joy, you may be living counterclockwise when grace is going clockwise. Okay, I just want to end with a promise. Jesus made it. It's so wonderful that it's hard to believe. And I never noticed it before this week. The disciples were always pestering Jesus with questions. You ever notice that? You go through the Gospels all the time. It's just, hey, Jesus, can I sit at your right hand? Hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Hey, Jesus, why was this man born blind from birth? Hey, Jesus, how could we, you know, how come we couldn't cast out this demon? Hey, Jesus, what does this parable mean? Um, hey, hey, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to blast the Samaritans? Hey, Jesus, which one of us is the greatest? Hey, Jesus, what do you mean by a little while? All the time, it's, hey, Jesus. And I was thinking about that and thinking about this passage we're reading about. And I was wondering, I was thinking, I wonder if Jesus ever got tired of all the questions. But think about this. Think about what he says. Jesus says, friends, let me tell you, for a little while you won't see me and things won't look right. You'll see terrible things in this world. Cancer, hunger, war, hatred, pandemics, injustice, betrayal, abuse. And then in a little while, it will seem like a long time to you, but in the scale of eternity, it's only a little while. Just a little while. In a very little while, I'm coming back, and you will see me again, and I will set it all right, and the world will be reborn, and its birth pangs will be forgotten, and joy will win. And on that day, not, not today, maybe not tomorrow, but on that day, Jesus says, you will ask me no more questions. What a good day that's going to be. Rudolf Baltman put it like this. He says, it, it is the nature of joy that all questions grow silent and nothing needs explaining. Then we'll see the goodness of God. Then this world will be reborn. Then sin and guilt and pain and suffering and death will be defeated. Then there will be no more questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray for them and for myself that joy, your joy, the joy of the Lord, a pervasive and constant sense of well-being might be ours. It might be full until there are no more questions in just a little while. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.